Well, good evening, Harvest. If you've got your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And as you're doing that, let me say a couple of things, if I might. What a, uh, a joy it actually is to be with you uh, here at Harvest uh, tonight. As uh, Pastor Jeff mentioned, uh, this is, uh, Rhonda, and my second to last Sunday uh, serving at this in this capacity in uh, West Michigan, and I'm going to head off to take up a, a charge, a call, uh, to uh, serve as a professor of practical theology and lead the practical theology department at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, I want to say what a privilege it is to be with you who have been such special friends. Uh, we have a, a, just a special friendship as a congregation. And uh, my uh, friendship with my dear, esteemed friend, Pastor Dale, and Jeff, and Wayne, and your elders. So we're grateful to be here tonight. I also would like to just invite you, if uh, you're inclined, next Friday night, this coming Friday night, the Presbytery has seen fit to call me as a teacher and install me in that uh, role. And uh, we will have a friend of Pastor Dale's and mine, uh, Dr. Harry Reeder, will be at that service, and he'll be preaching, and it would just be a treat to hear Harry preach. And so I want to invite you, and if you would uh, come over to Redeemer next Friday night for the service, uh, we would love to uh, fellowship with you that way. Well, if you have your Bibles and you turn to Luke chapter 19 with me, I'd like to read in your hearing the Word of God from Luke 19, 1 to 10. Luke chapter 19, 1 to 10. Referring to Jesus, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that this evening uh, you would uh, be pleased to use a very weak earthen vessel to demonstrate the glorious treasure of the gospel that is seen in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as the Holy Spirit assists us and teaches us as as He opens up the Scriptures to us that we might see Christ from the Scriptures. Lord, we pray that as we see the Lord Jesus, you might enable us in your mercy to see our own sin, and as we see that, to see the bigness of the Savior you sent. Oh, Lord, would you help us? We pray that 
the word would be clear. We pray that the word would be compelling. And we pray for each and every heart and mind, every soul that hears this message, that from wherever they are, they would be compelled by the Spirit to turn from sin and to trust Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the stories of Jesus' eternity-altering encounters with people. I used to think that, one of my, that my favorite story in the Bible of Jesus encountering somebody and completely altering their eternity was the story of the woman at the well. As the Bible tells us in John chapter 4, Jesus heads to Jerusalem, and as He's heading to Jerusalem, it says in John chapter 4, He had to go through Samaria. Well, if you know the geography, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He was on a divine appointment. He had somebody that He wanted to meet so that He could save them and show us who He is. I used to think that was my favorite story. I think that what we're reading tonight might now be my favorite story. One of the blessings you have as a preacher is that you are supported week after week to get into the Scriptures, and you are always learning things. And tonight, as we look at this passage, we are learning about the wee sinner who had a much bigger Savior. As we come to the conclusion, the climax of Jesus' ministry before the cross in the Gospel of Luke, we are coming to His last call and conversion story. This is the last instance where Jesus actually has an appointment with an individual whom He calls and whom He converts. In Jesus' first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus stood up in His own home synagogue. And in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that he took the text from Isaiah 61, and he said this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And from there, Jesus stood and rolled up the scroll and said, words that I think probably caused the universe just to tip a little bit on its axis. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is God's Son on God's mission to proclaim life, liberty, to the broken, the blind, and to the bound sinners. And as we come to the conclusion of His earthly ministry as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus now not only proclaiming but providing life and liberty to an arch sinner. He's on a divine appointment. We get a clue that this appointment has been divinely, providentially set up by the first words that Luke, Luke uses. If you look at the beginning of your text, it says, He entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man. Well, what do you know? Jesus is on His way through a city, and there's a sinner whom He says, like the woman at the well, I must stay with you. There's no coincidence here. This is Christ fulfilling His agenda to get next to a particular sinner so He can save them and show us who He is. And as we get into this passage tonight, what we're going to learn is this eternity-altering reality. Jesus 
accomplished his mission by saving an arch sinner. And so we should turn and trust him. Jesus accomplished his mission by saving an arch sinner. And so we should turn and trust him. There's three main characters to the story that, uh, we, that reveal who Jesus is and what he did to us, uh, who he did for us. I'd like you to notice the three characters with me tonight. First, we're going to look at the man, the man, and then we're going to look at the mob, and then we're going to see the Messiah. The man, the mob, and then the Messiah. Now, notice first, if you would, the man that Jesus met on the way through Jericho. Zacchaeus was a lying, thieving, self-serving, oppressive, corrupt little kingdom builder who was loathed by his neighbors. If he were alive today, he'd be the focus of a hashtag chief tax collector social shame campaign. From the Gospel of Luke, we know that tax collectors were seen as lowlife because what they did is they worked a corrupted tax system that oppressed their own people. They were part of a kind of a pyramid scheme where they could skim off as much as they could from their taxes. And often what they did is they'd use the the muscle of a Roman centurion to enforce their system. One writer of the time said this, tax collectors were in a class of society with adulterers, pimps, tax collectors, yes men, and informers. So we can imagine what an arch tax collector was like, what a chief tax collector was like, and what they, how they were seen. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. That means that he was at the top of the organization running the other tax collectors underneath him who were scamming the common folks. And Luke, who does not waste words, tells us that he made a boatload of money in the scheme. It says he was rich. Now, here's why I point all that out to us. Because the children's song, you know the children's song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. That has led us to think of Zacchaeus as a humorous, diminutive little figure that Jesus just had to have pity on because he was so cute. But he's more like Don Corleone sitting behind the table with Luca Brazzi at his shoulder, making his dealer's downline pony up with his take. He's not just a tax collector, he's an arch tax collector. He's not just a sinner, he's an arch sinner. But, how many times does Jesus change the world with that little word, but? But with the arrival of Jesus in Jericho, Zacchaeus' story is about to take a pivot for all eternity. If you're in their world and you're hearing this story for the first time, the surprise for you would start when you hear that this corrupt little kingdom builder was seeking to see Jesus. Now, the way that phrase is put together in the original, he was seeking to see Jesus, says that he'd been seeking Jesus for some time. Now, maybe he'd heard about Jesus from the other tax collectors. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus hangs out with a lot of tax collectors. Early on in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5 tells us that he even called one of the tax collectors, his name is Levi, to be one of his own disciples. So maybe Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus from these tax collectors. Wouldn't that be a conversation you'd love to hear? Zacchaeus, Levi, you're a little light on your take this month. Levi says, yes, so I met this rabbi named Jesus, (laughs) and he kind of changed everything. 
Now, we don't know how he'd been drawn to seek Jesus, but we do know that he's determined to get to Jesus no matter what other people think. That's actually the reason for the, the description of his stature and the fact that he couldn't get through the crowd and that he ran on ahead and he climbed up in the sycamore tree. The reason it's there is it's a picture, listen to this, of self-forgetful, humble, I do not care about social awkwardness, desperation to get to Jesus. He said, well, how do you know that? Because if you read the Gospel of Luke, as you have done in recent years, you see that orientation of heart again and again in Luke's Gospel. Chapter 5, there's a man who the Bible says is full of leprosy. Leprosy was a disease that got you ostracized. You had to stay outside of the community. You were not allowed to be, a, be near people. And there's a man in Luke chapter 5 who's full of leprosy who makes his way through a city where people would have been shunning him and shaming him and, and disgusted with him so that he can get to where Jesus is and throw himself at Jesus' feet and say, have mercy on me and cleanse me. Forgetful of self, humble, desperation to get to Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 5, there's a story of a man who can't walk. He's paralyzed. And Jesus is teaching in a home, and the home is crowded. And it's so crowded that the paralyzed man's friends can't get, get him to Jesus. And so they dig a hole in a roof, and they drop, they drop the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus while he's teaching, a little socially awkward to say the least. They are desperate to get him to Jesus. And then there's that beautiful story in Luke chapter 7 where we hear about the woman of the city. We're never given her name. We're only told that she's a notorious sinner. And she violates all social customs. She violates all convention of society. When she finds Jesus when he's being entertained at a meal, and she comes and she lets down her hair, and she weeps over Jesus, and she pours oil on his feet, and she wipes the tears from his feet with her hair in an expression of faith and affection, self-forgetting, humble hang the consequences, desperation to get to Jesus. And it happens again and again and again in the Gospel of Luke. So why do you think that Luke recorded for us that this little man who had climbed the social ladder, who had done everything he could to be a man of wealth, did something that men never do? He ran ahead. And like a little boy, he climbed a tree. It is a picture of humble self-forgetful, I don't care what they think about me, desperation to get to Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, that's what happens when people realize that they're blind, they're broken, they're bound, and that Jesus is the Savior who can save them from their sin and from themselves and from Satan. They don't care. They just have to get to Jesus. That's what's going on with Zacchaeus. But it's not just a picture of humble desperation. He's also a picture of receptivity and repentance toward Jesus. If your Bible's still open, look at verse 6, and you get this delightful, dynamic picture. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So after Jesus speaks, Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy. That's going to be important in just a moment. 
There's that theme that Jesus has tried to get through to the grumblers in the Gospel of Luke. He told, you'll be familiar with them, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons, that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. And when the sinner knows he's been received by Jesus, his heart overflows with delighted joy. Luke's word picture, he pictures an urgent response to Jesus' invitation, the way the words are put together. So he hurried and came down and received him gladly. There's the overflow of a heart that Jesus has changed. There's the overflow of fruit, the fruit of faith in Jesus, joyfully receiving the one who has seen you and determined to command you and call you to join him in fellowship. Zacchaeus is getting more than he could ever have imagined. He was running ahead. He climbed a tree just to see Jesus. And before a word gets out of Zacchaeus' mouth, Jesus sees him and he says, hey, let's have fellowship. That's what Jesus does with the, the sinners that he sees and the sinners that he's seeking to save. The God-given grace work change in Zacchaeus' life is put beyond question by his confession of faith and his repentance. You notice what Zacchaeus does. Once he received Jesus, he stands up and he says, Lord. That title's not used that often of Jesus in Luke. And when he uses it, it's meant to picture something. Zacchaeus gets who Jesus is. This one is the Lord. And then he says, Jesus I give up my corruption and its earnings. I restore what I have unjustly gained fourfold. Listen, there may be no more vivid picture of a conversion to Christ in the entire Bible, maybe save the the Apostle Paul. Here's what's going on in Zacchaeus' story. Here's what's happening. When the Gospel of Luke opens, John the Baptist goes before Jesus and he tells, John the Baptist shows up and tells his congregation that that there are a bunch of snakes. And then he says, here's how you receive the blessing. You're coming out to see the moment. You're coming out to see the movement. Here's how you receive the blessings of the Christ that is to come. You have to repent. And you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then Luke chapter 5, when Jesus begins his ministry and he begins to teach, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Here's what it means to repent. To repent means to turn from and to turn to. In the Bible, repentance means this, that God has given me such a sense of my sin and offense that my sin is to Him that I hate my sin. But as He's given me the sense of my sin, He has shown me the mercy of the Savior. And so I look at my sin, but I look at the Savior, and trusting Him for His mercy, I turn from my sin to God. And as I turn from my sin through Christ to God, I turn to a new obedience so that I walk in His character and His commands. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And that's what's happening to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is exhibit A of what John the Baptist preached about, what Jesus preached about, what Jesus came to accomplish. He is calling a sinner to repentance. Zacchaeus is turning from his corrupted little kingdom. He's giving up his corrupted little kingdom. You realize what he said. Just notice carefully what he does. He says, Lord, I'm going to give half of everything I've got. He's rich. I'm going to give half of everything I've got to the poor. Right off the top, half, gone. And then what does he do? If I've, de- if, if I've defrauded anybody, that's a given. 
If I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give it back four times as much. He's not going to be left with much, is he? What's Zacchaeus doing? He's saying, Lord, the corrupted kingdom that I built that has made me who I am, I have just given it up. I am turning from my sin, I am trusting in you, and I am turning to what God has called me to do. That's a picture of repentance. Now, that, those good deeds didn't earn Zacchaeus salvation. They evidenced what Jesus had done for him. They didn't merit God's forgiveness. It manifested the fact that he had been forgiven by Christ. So can you see it? Can you see the picture? The beauty of the good news in this final call and conversion story that Luke has given to us is this, that not just little sinners, big sinners, arch sinners, get the gift of grace, get the gift of forgiveness, get the gift of repentance. God draws arch sinners, really bad dudes who have oppressed people, who have ripped people off, who have built their life on other people's stuff. God gives them the humble desperation to seek Jesus. God gives to them the ability, the grace to receive Jesus. God gives to them the grace to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the good news. And heaven, Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, rejoices. But not everybody rejoices. Not everybody rejoices at what Jesus is doing. We've seen the man, now I'd like you to see the mob. Look back at the text, if you would. And into verse 7, and it says, And when they saw it, they all said, Praise the Lord! No, they all grumbled. Now, if you guys have walked through the Gospel of Luke like you have done recently, you know grumbling's not new. Whenever Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, the religious leaders grumble. The people who think they're righteous before God because they have impeccably performed good deeds grumble. The people who think that God is about them because they're Israelites grumble. The people who are mad at Jesus because he's not making much of them grumble. Grumbling is not a good word. Grumbling is what Israel did in the wilderness before God. And as you read the Gospel of Luke, you find out that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, they grumble about Jesus. Here's what's new in this, the all. Notice what the text says, they all grumbled. Now it's not just the leaders, it's spread to the crowd. Jesus calls Zacchaeus, he goes and spends time with Zacchaeus, and here's what they do. They go find their little corner of the church, and they murmur and they complain about the lavish grace that is being dispensed to an arch sinner. That kind of opposition has been laced through the gospel of Luke and behind Jesus' ministry all the way from that time that he stood up and he gave his first sermon in that synagogue, if we were to continue reading tonight in Luke chapter 4, where it says that today the Scriptures fulfilled in your hearing that He was here to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the blind. And, and then He says, that, by the way, the blessing of the kingdom is going to the unclean Gentiles. And the congregation said, praise the Lord. No. They said, let's throw Him off a cliff. And all the way through the Gospel of Luke, there has been that, uh, that opposition, opposition that is based 
on ethnocentrism. We want God to be about our tribe, our people. Opposition that is based on self-righteousness. The Pharisee who stands up in the temple when the tax collector's there praying and sings his own song, Great is my faithfulness, O God my Father, this is why you should accept me. That kind of self-righteousness, that kind of tribalism has created opposition to Jesus all the way along. And so in Luke chapter 7, Jesus essentially calls the entire generation a generation of spiritual brats. Luke chapter 7, it says this, as Jesus was interpreting the entire generation, he says this, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Listen to this, they're all like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Then Jesus says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What was Jesus saying to this generation? Essentially, they could not get God's spokesman, particularly Jesus, to dance to their tune. And their tune was, God accepts you based on you keeping the code. And by the way, that's how we accept you too. And if you transgress the code, you get shamed and you get shunned, and they couldn't get Jesus to dance to that tune. And so they grumbled and they complained. One commentator put it this way, the complaint about Jesus staying with sinners shows that the crowd, the crowd has learned little from His ministry. Loved ones, the sentiment, whether we express it or whether we just hold it, us for no more shut the door in a church is not in line with Jesus' mission. The mob was not on mission with the Messiah. So finally, having seen the man and seen the mob, now we need to see the Messiah. Would you look with me back at the text? The one they're grumbling against identified himself and his mission in the very last statement in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now to get the full impact of that, you have to understand that that title, the Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. Nobody else calls Jesus the Son of Man in the Gospels. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. We also have to understand that the Son of Man doesn't just mean Jesus possessed a fully human nature. It doesn't just mean He was a man. That's true. He was the, the eternal Son of God who took to Himself a, a truly human nature. That's true. But the Son of Man means more than that. The Son of Man is a title that comes out of the promise of the Old Testament. We find it in places like the Psalm 8, and we find it in places like Daniel chapter 7, where God promises to restore and reestablish the rule over His people and His world that was lost in the first man, Adam. And He's going to bring another, a glorious, authoritative, with divine authority, end-time figure who is going to reestablish His rule, who's going to renew His people, redeem His people, and renew His creation. That's the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, it is a picture of great glory. Now hang on to your seats. Here's what Jesus says. That glorious, divinely authorized, end-time ruling and redeeming figure, His mission is to seek and to save sinners. The Son of Man 
came to seek a woman at a well. That glorious end time figure came to seek a little man up in a tree so that he could save him, so that he could show himself to us, so that he could, by his word, his spirit working through his word, seek and save people like me and like you. That's the mission of the Messiah. I'd like you to see in the text from the story how the Son of Man on that glorious mission reveals His authority. He reveals His authority in two ways. First of all, He's the one that first speaks to Zacchaeus. Before Zacchaeus is able to get a word out of his mouth, Jesus comes to him and Jesus names him. And He says, Zacchaeus, and then He gives him a command, hurry and come down, and then He gives him an invitation, for I must stay at your house today. Loved ones, we call that effectual calling. When the Savior seeks you out and He speaks and His Word actually gives you life so that you, a dead sinner, are now able to respond to Jesus and to receive Him by faith with joy. The Son of Man exercises His authority by speaking and giving sinners life so that sinners can respond to Him and receive Him by joy, with joy. Here's the second way he demonstrates his authority in the text. Look at what he says about Zacchaeus. He says, today salvation has come to this house. There's another place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus uses that language, and he says, today, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? Jesus, as the Son of Man, has authority. As the, as, as the eternal Son of God who has taken on human nature and who has been given by the Father all authority in heaven and on earth, He is the one who gets to say, salvation has arrived. And He declares authoritatively like nobody else can to this sinner who has turned and who has trusted Him today, salvation has come to this house. I am, I am, I love the picture of Jesus. He's not looking at the grumblers saying, you know what, they're going to be upset if I declare this guy saved. He's not looking at the religious leaders and saying, you know what, they might be a little, uh, they might be a little concerned. They might get a little mad at me. They might, if I say to this guy, freely, God has forgiven your sin. Listen, I want you to know this. When you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you turn from your sin and you trust the Savior, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter the sin that you have been involved in. It doesn't matter the home that you came from. He says that whoever believes in Him will not be be disappointed. When you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive Him and you repent and you trust Jesus Christ, He says, today salvation has come to this house and there is nobody else that can declare different. The Son of Man has come to seek and save sinners, and that includes the authority through His Spirit working by His Word to assure you that you are His now and for all eternity. Listen, repentance is not a work that you do to prepare for salvation. Repentance is a gift that God gives to you out of His grace so that you can turn and trust the Savior. 
Some of you grew up in traditions where you never know whether you've done enough to be ready for Jesus. Listen, Jesus has sought you. Jesus has seen you. Jesus has saved you if you believed in Him. And Jesus, the Son of Man, with all authority in heaven and earth, authoritatively declares to all who believe in Him, you're mine. And all the blessings of my kingdom are yours for now and for all eternity. Now, that's good news, right? It's good news, right? It gets better because he didn't just proclaim salvation. He didn't just pronounce salvation. He actually purchased salvation because the Son of Man was not just a storyteller. The Son of Man did not just have divine appointments on the road to Jericho and on the way to Samaria. The Son of Man shortly after this will be handed over to sinners And that one, the glorious Son of Man, was hung on a cross where He absorbed the wrath of God for every sin of every person who would ever believe in Jesus. And the Son of Man was raised from the dead to reign in their hearts and to give them new life and to rule over them for eternity. And the Son of Man will come again in all of His glory to establish His kingdom, not just in our hearts, not just in heaven like it is now, but now, but He will establish it in the new creation, in the new heavens, and the new earth as He raises us from the dead and we stand there gloriously conformed to the image of His Son. He not only pronounced salvation, He has purchased it with His own death and His own blood and His own resurrection so that today, if you believe in Jesus, your salvation could not be more secure and your hope could not be more glorious. So what do you do? What do you do with the one who has accomplished his mission by saving arch sinners? You turn and you trust him. And may I particularly say to those of you who have been part of the covenant community your whole life, and who maybe you've been building your own corrupted little kingdom. This was, Jesus said, a son of Abraham who came home. If you have been here week after week, month after month, year after year, you've been marked out for the co- by, the, by the covenant sign, you've grown up in the covenant family, you are a daughter, you are a son of the church, but you have never renounced your own little kingdom and come and trusted Jesus Christ today. Christ calls you through His Word. Believe and repent. If you're an arch sinner, if you've been building your own little kingdom and the, through injustice and oppression and rebellion, the Son of Man speaks to you through His Word and He says, believe, turn, and trust the Savior. The Son of Man accomplished His mission by saving arch sinners. So turn and trust Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we stand amazed at the presence 
in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who attends the worship of his people by his spirit. We stand amazed at the purpose and the mission of the Son of Man. Lord, what small thoughts we have of you, what small affections we have for you, what low expectations we so often have. And Lord, we would pray for every single person uh, hearing this message tonight who might be wrestling with whether their sin is too much for the Savior. Would you show them that you save arch sinners? We pray for everyone hearing this message tonight, O oh Lord who might um, be part of the covenant family and who has never turned and trusted Jesus, would you show them that the Savior is big enough for their sin? And then, Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters at Harvest Church. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would so light a fire in their heart that they would be on the mission of the Savior until the Son of Man returns. Deliver us, we pray, from grumbling at your ways, from grumbling at your plan. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us those who seek and, and pronounce salvation to sinners in Jesus' name. It's in his name that we pray. And God's people said, amen.